welcome to Mum's Dad's Work, episode five of our second season. My name's Ben Falk. I'm the editor of WorkingDads.co.uk. I'm here with Mandy Garner. Hi, Mandy. Hi, Ben. I'm editor of WorkingMums.co.uk. Excellent. And your guys today actually is in in, in your other job as well, your sister yes. job, brother job, cousin job. I don't know. It, it's a big week for um, WM people this week. So tell us about what, what's going on. Yes. So I am also editor of WorkingWise.co.uk, which is our website for older workers. And this week is National Older Workers Week. It's the third one that we've run and it's full of practical advice for job seekers, but also lots of sessions for employers as well, focus on best practice and trying to get people to talk about multi-generational working and all the different ages and stages of our working lives and how we kind of what people need at those different points in their working life. Does it feel like that kind of stuff is getting better? Is 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 it plateauing? Where you know we're obviously always on a quest to kind of do search out for best practice. What what's what's going on at the moment? Is it is it are we are we pleased with where it's at? Yeah, I mean, I think when we started working wise, it was very much a very small group of employers that were interested, and it was very much on the periphery of a lot of employers' sort of you know vista. <laughs> and I think that although it's been gradual that it definitely has improved and there's more employers that are paying attention to age diversity and worried about it. They may not know exactly what to do to to make their workforces more age diverse, but they are interested definitely. And there's many more kind of joining in National Older Workers Week than, than there were before. And also there's been a lot of, you know, policy developments basically as a result of what happened in, in the pandemic and the sort of older workers dropping out of the workforce, all that kind of thing has made it kind of more in the news as well, more in the forefront of people's thinking. And age diversity is also, it's not just older workers, but it's, it's you know, younger workers as well <laughs> so so uh it's across the spectrum and and parents fall into the middle kind of section I think uh where sometimes we're kind of doing both looking after younger children or even teenagers and also looking after older parents or maybe partners so the we're the so-called sandwich generation I'm definitely in that bracket <laughs> so there's quite a lot of crossover I think between the two and for National Older Workers Week, a lot of the sessions will be useful for anyone. I think there's lots of practical stuff about CV advice and career transition and all that kind of stuff. And it's all free. So if if anybody's interested, just head over to the website, which is www.nationalolderworkersweek.co.uk. Excellent. It's it's full of loads of, you know, really useful tips and practical stuff and case studies and all this kind of stuff. It's it's a fantastic site. But obviously the main kind of body of what we like to do on this podcast is well, we do like to give you lots of practical advice. So we had a good chat this week, didn't we, Mandy, with with our guest. Tell us a little bit about our guest. Yes. So so this week's guest is Laura Walker. She is uh, great. She's a, a what is called a midlife career transition specialist. So she's going to be she's talking to us about everything to do with, you know, people who are interested in you get to that point in your your career or whatever that you might maybe want to make a change or do something different your values maybe change so so that's all of that is something that that we'll be talking about but but how you do it as well that's the that's the key issue how do you get there fantastic Let, let's hear what laura has to say welcome to mum's dad's work laura it's great to have you here 
I wanted to start really with, you know, asking how you got into being involved with career reinvention and, and uh, you know, what, what, what made you start doing this? And I know you've got your great, you, you know, your, your book out, Dancing with Fear and Confidence. So it'd be good to hear a little bit about that as well. Yeah, no problem. Of course, it didn't start with the books. It started way before then. So a few things happened to kind of prompt my shift, as is probably the case with other people when they shift. So I was the director of learning progression at the time, uh, John Lewis, and I noticed a lot more people coming up to me and asking for a quiet chat about their midlife career. It was kind of a sneaky little conversation because they didn't have anywhere else to go to talk about it, frankly. I was then made redundant myself, so I had to shift my own career. And I was also doing a master's at the time and had to do that tricky thing of choosing a research topic that's something you want to spend a whole year of your life focused on. So it needed to be something I was interested in, but also something that there was already a gap in the research. So obviously the idea is that you add to the current knowledge. And there's really very little written about midlife career coaching in general, but specifically around career change or reinvention, as I went on to call it. So it was a combination of personal circumstances, noticing a need in Mm. people I was around, but also the need to fill a gap. And it was only really that I only really stepped into it once I'd done my research. I was starting to present at conferences and realized there was a real appetite for this subject matter and people were starting to make a shift in midlife because of course we're working longer mm. living longer we're having more transitions in our careers and people were getting to 40 50 occasionally 60 and going I know I've got 10 15 20 years left I know I don't want to do this but I don't know what I do what to do and that's what I found was the real need where people needed that help to figure out what they wanted So my research was into reinvention itself. So people who had reinvented with the Mm -hmm. benefit of insight. So what did they learn through the process? But I wanted to produce something that helped people who were at the beginning of the journey. Um, And that's when I stepped into into this whole space. So with the John Lewis, you know, when you said people were coming up and having little conversations Mm -hmm. on the side, what kinds of things were they, you know, were they asking you? And was it, were they sort of worried about, you know, finding it difficult to bring up the subject. Yeah, so most career development in organisations is focused in early career. So around people deciding what they want to do in the first place or on big talent schemes, so like graduate schemes, um, apprenticeships, etc. There's really very little that focuses on people in mid-career or mid-life a bit later or even towards the end of career. There used to be more later on in career, helping people retire. But even now, there's there's very little around that. So there is this just this big gap that people just don't know where to go. And they start to have a conversation with their manager, for example. But if they want to do something else, it's quite difficult for their manager to help them because they don't know how to help them jump into a different area of an organisation or into a different organisation. They just know what they've done or what they've been given by the the company, for example, themselves. So the manager can't really help. So they then try and find a a third party who's got less of a bias towards what they do. So a kind of an objective third party to help and listen to them as they process their thoughts. So yeah, it was just interesting that they they didn't know where else to go, basically. Yes, and and in the book, you say, I think you say quite often that it can be harder to change 
in midlife because you've got mm. obviously more responsibilities you're kind of more trapped in a way you feel a bit more caught and stuck in the system how you, when you're talking to people when you're sort of coaching people is it when they when something sort of quite you know uh, dramatic happens like redundancy that they're more likely to make that shift or is how easy is it to make that shift when you're actually in a job and you've got you know your daily work that you're doing and you haven't really got the space to step back yeah good question what what I find is that it's one of two routes so it's either something big happens so a like a life event or a redundancy a death of a close relative for example or a friend um, illness etc. So there can be a a specific life event that can peak the need. The other route is where people gradually become more and more dissatisfied. So it can creep up on them. And eventually they might be on holiday or have a break for some reason, like like a career break or become a parent. It can bring everything to the fore around, do I really want to go back? Is it worth me going back and giving up? the thing that I'm doing here, it has to be really worth you making the the shift. So the way I describe it is one way or another, you have to be sufficiently dissatisfied with your current situation generally to bring about a reinvention. And it can take years. So for some people, three, six, eight years is not uncommon for that dissatisfaction to build. And eventually it gets to that point where you can't cope with it any longer. Do you think COVID might have been one of those sort of factors that have accelerated some of those, <laughs> some of those discussions? Yeah, I've noticed an uptick in interest. Absolutely. There's also quite a lot of evidence around something called quiet quitting. You've probably heard of it. So even if people aren't leaving jobs, which they were, so obviously there was a big in, uh, increase in um, people resigning after COVID. But now it's more of a quiet quitting situation, um, which I think is just storing up the problem, to be honest. So where people are still dissatisfied, but for various reasons around cost of living or fewer opportunities in their their right spaces, it's just storing up the problem, but it will will come around again, for sure, yeah. Um, I'll ask a slightly silly question, which is you call it midlife, career reinvention what does that actually mean yeah and we have people that live to 100 you know all the what what, when for people that are listening to this what does what what are you kind of equating that with age-wise and and I guess time in their job-wise yeah definitely not a silly question by the way (laughs) (laughs) the first part of my research was what is this thing anyway so yeah don't you worry so mid if I take that in two chunks so midlife Uh, The definition of midlife is generally the difference, which explains a lot itself, to be honest. It's the difference between your youth and your old age. And this differs across countries, interestingly. But in the UK, youth is deemed to end at 37, probably for some. And your old age (laughs) begins at 62. So it's generally, I'd say broadly, between 40 and 60 but it can build up before 40 because you're getting that anticipation of the big birthday, you see. That often mm. becomes a thing. And then old age can, I think 62 is not necessarily that old, but it could be my position <laughs> in the age range. Career reinvention, interestingly. So I did think about the terminology. So people call it different things. So it can be career change, career shift, career. Sometimes it's 
reorientation or different things. But basically, it's a, it's a significant change of some sort, which interestingly, in my research, even when people made a really big change in what they do, so where people went from being an IT consultant in Scotland to a brewery owner in France, or they went, you know, really big shifts in what they did. It wasn't really the change in what they did that they felt had been the biggest thing. It was how they worked and how they related to their work. So the fact that they went from really dissatisfied to feeling liberated and energized by their work. So they didn't just go interestingly from dissatisfaction to satisfaction, which is what I'd assumed in the research. They actually went from dissatisfied to liberated. And you can achieve that same level of liberation or similar levels of liberation through changing how you work, your working pattern, where you work, who you work with, the context that you're doing your work, developing a sense of purpose around your work. There's lots of things that you can do that can create that level of reinvention, even without changing profession. So you don't have to change profession to reinvent. And the people that are doing it well, are they, uh, uh, what are they doing? You know, the ones that are succeeding in this change, what what do you think they're doing correctly to make it happen? So there are three main things that people do to successfully reinvent. And these are the three main findings from my research. So first off, they start with discovering. So they don't try and jump too quickly to deciding, am I, do I want to do this or this? You have to start with discovering. So you have to rediscover who you are now, what matters to you most to you now, what am I good at? So you need to regroup before you start going, right, shall I do this thing over there that I know nothing about? So you have to start with a regrouping. The second thing is you need to make sure that your context is ready enough. So to, to your point, Mandy, you know, a lot of people around you can hold you back and keep you stuck. So you need to review what's going on in your life that will help you make a shift, but also hinder and bring the people with you, basically. So a lot of people in your family or your friends or your colleagues, they have a vested interest in what you do. So they either don't want you to change, so it suits them to keep you where you are, or they really do want you to change and they can start telling you exactly what you should start doing, (laughs) which is neither is very helpful. So you kind of have to bring people along the journey. So you need to make sure that your context is ready to support the shift and the people around you. And the third thing is really navigating the dance with fear and confidence. So what I mean by the dance of fear and confidence is there's a whole variety of factors that are going on. So very rarely when you reduce your fear for something, does your confidence go up? It's not a linear relationship or vice versa. So when you get more confident about something, you can still feel the fear. Or you can feel a different fear. So like people will often be afraid of change to start with and then become afraid of not changing. You know, it can completely flip. So it's a really fascinating dance with with emotions in general, particularly around fear and confidence. And the ones who succeed really pay attention to what's going on for them and notice that fear is their friend, it's not their foe. So this idea of feel the fear and do it anyway, or don't feel fear, just go for it, is actually really unhelpful. You should notice the fear, pay attention to it, address the issue, and then move on. So the fear is there to keep you safe. It's there for a reason. 
So if you can pay attention to what the message is, then it can really help you to become more resourceful and to move forward. So it's those three things really around take time to discover, bring your people with you um, so they're helping you and to pay attention to the fear and confidence and the dance that's going on. Great, great. That's really useful. And do you think that there needs to be more kind of role models, you know, stories around of people who've done it? Because it's very difficult to do something. Uh, certainly, um, you know, I found that when I was a mum, I had all sorts of ideas going round and round in my brain for many, many years, <laughs> thinking, how am I going to do this? And how am I going to make it work with work? And I think a lot of people are probably in the same position in midlife, sort of thinking through everything. And having other people's stories to read it kind of helps to make your make you think well maybe that one's not the you know maybe I don't want to do that but I can see how they came to that conclusion and and how they've gone about doing it yeah I'm going to say to a point so hearing other people's stories is for people who reinvented their careers was mildly interesting to be honest so they found it broadly encouraging but it didn't help them with their own decisions because their own circumstances are very different. In a way, some people get put off hearing other people's stories because it's a bit like, well, that's not like, that's not like my life or they discard it in some way. So I'd say it can be broadly inspirational, but you still have to do the work around, you know, what do you actually want? What's important to you? What are your risk factors what you're good at but yeah it can it can be broadly encouraging I'd say rather than necessarily it doesn't really it doesn't really help you or hinder you we we talk here you know about mums and dads what Mm -hmm. were the differences you saw between men and women in this in this arena yeah so my research did cover both men and women so because there was no research at all in this space I had I had to keep it nice and broad so I worked with men and women who had reinvented their careers but also coaches who had coached hundreds of people through the process men and women and at a high level the three themes that emerged were the same so the three I've mentioned around take time to get to know yourself again bring your contacts with you and the dance It was when you got the next level down that you noticed the subtleties in the questions that people were asking themselves or the experiences they had around bias. So around, for example, bias against women occurs at all stages in their careers. So this idea that men are particularly biased against from an age point of view at the beginning and the later end of their careers, that's when they most experience prejudice but for women it's at all sorts of different stages but what we did uncover was particularly in midlife where men were the prime carers for their families that's where they experience even more prejudice and bias against them compared with women who were the prime carers for their families so there's a whole blend of things that are going on for people But the questions in midlife are very powerful. So they're very um, common. So it's always been a a stage of questioning. It's a very natural stage to pause and take stock. It's very rarely a stage of a crisis, by the way. And there's no evidence that you're more likely to have a crisis in midlife than at any other time. But it is a time for questioning. And crisis actually means, it comes from the Greek word crisis with a K and actually means decision point. So it is a decision point. It's not a painful time necessarily. It's just a natural time. 
And a lot of men ask a slightly different version of questions. So they might ask, have I done enough? Have I made a big enough difference? Have I achieved enough? Those sorts of questions. So it's still questions, whereas women are often more, who am I now? Who, you know, what matters to me now that I'm not, you know, I've got an emptiness syndrome, for example, or now it's my time. Who am I now? What matters to me? So they're kind of similar questions, but of a slightly different flavor. Really interesting. And there's obviously there's been on the policy side of things, there's been like quite a lot about midlife MOTs, the online ones that there are now. Do you think that they are useful as a starting point or is it better to have the one to one because it's you're, you're basically going into whole kind of the, the who am I kind of questions, I guess. And what do I like? What am I, what am I good at kind of thing? So yeah. do the midlife MOTs help? They do help. And there's quite a lot of evidence to show that. So there's been evidence over the last 15 years, to be honest, to show that a midlife review can make a really big difference to people at that stage. And a mid-career review as well. So similarly, you know, anyone who's asking some of those big questions, it can be a really good starting point. I'm also a big believer in democratizing coaching. So if you can democratize access to online support or group coaching, For example, just make it more accessible to more people. That's generally a good thing. If people are finding that they they haven't got an objective or unbiased, challenging supporter that they can work with, it can be useful to have a coach. But if you've got someone who can operate in that way and help you to think things through in an unbiased way, um, then I I think, you know, kind of go for it, to be honest. Um, It might take you a little bit further. Because the reinvention journey often does take some time. So it's very rare for a coach to work with somebody all the way through the process. You generally find that people would only duck in and duck out anyway. So it may be that there's a certain point on a journey, on a reinvention journey, that would be really, really helpful <laughs> to have a couple of sessions with somebody. Probably not the whole, the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been absolutely fascinating. Before we go, just quickly tell us about the the book so I wrote the book when I started presenting research at conferences and people kept coming up to me and saying you really should write this for people who are at that stage wanting to start the thinking for themselves so that's what it's about it's written for individuals who are getting to that stage where they're starting to think Actually, 10, 15, 20 years of doing this, I really don't think it's for me, but I'm not sure what I want to do. So it's to help them make sense of what's going on for them, to help understand what midlife is all about and and the psychology of midlife. It's grounded in loads of research. I wanted to write a book that I was proud of and wasn't just a a kind of off-the-shelf self-help book based on fluffy, wishful thinking. I wanted something that was grounded in real evidence and research, um, but was also accessible. So I'm I'm not a big fan of academia generally because it's it's quite impervious. I wanted something that was easy to read, engaging, lots of stories, lots of anecdotes, lots of useful tips. And hopefully uh, people tell me that it it is of that nature. So I'm, I'm happy. Great. Well, thank you so much, Laura. It's been really good talking to you and get the book, Dancing with Fear and Confidence. <laughs> it's it's out. It's been out for a, a couple of years, has it? When, when did it come out? Yeah, that's right. Two years. Yeah. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Brilliant. Thank you, Laura. Thank you.
So great to hear there what Laura had to say about career transition. So so one of the things that we have been looking at recently, which has come up a lot, obviously, is the cost of living crisis. And as we sort of move into winter and you know, heating and all that kind of stuff, but also Christmas, which is a really difficult time for a lot of families these days. I've been sort of talking to people about debt and how you manage debt. And I went to a round table last week at Step Change, which is the debt charity, which was really, really interesting. And we were just talking about all the different things that are going on and all the contributing factors and the kind of spiral of things that come up and the fact that people's lives are very complicated and you know you fix one thing and then there's another thing and that, that they're all kind of linked together and how do we actually do something to help so that was that was really interesting slightly depressing was it any you know because often you have these things and they're quite just sort of laying out the problems which we obviously yeah. sadly know about was it was there was it solutions focused or was there a sense that there was ideas for how to go about doing things differently I mean, there were some some definitely some ideas and there was a lot of, you know, like things that we ought to consider things that. So so what the, the, the big focus was on women, because 64 percent of the people that have come to get advice um, from them in the last year have are women with single parents in particular seeking advice on debt. So they were sort of outlining, uh, outlining, as you said, some of the problem areas and things that people maybe hadn't taken or policymakers hadn't taken into account, including things like domestic and e- economic abuse in terms of of policy solutions and there was a lot of talk about simplifying simplifying you know information the tax things like tax-free childcare, those kind of things but also simplifying the benefit system simplifying and signposting people better to things like the household support fund and that 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 I mean somebody had done a pilot on that and it, it had shown that if you you know the information is 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 easier to access then obviously people are more likely to take things up and pointing out that a lot of these applications things are very difficult to do if you've got all sorts of things going on in your life and you're, you've got children sort of running around and, and, and what have you. If, if if the forms are really complicated, then, you know, it, it, it takes time and then you don't get, you know, you only get the money from the date that you're, <laughs> you're yeah, at, yeah. you made that application, all that kind of thing. So there was a lot of that. So there are some things that can be done, but the real difference is going to be in terms of sort of benefits level. It's, it's for policymakers, you know benefits levels there's a a letter joint letter by children's groups at the end of last week which was talking about the need for benefits to be up rated in line with september inflation figures as they usually are um, in the autumn statement so we'll wait and see what happens there but yeah i mean i don't know because there was recently it seemed like the chancellor was getting ready to Mm, save some money from un- unemployed and, and benefits and stuff I mean I, th- I guess that'll be an interesting thing over the next however long year or so as we kind of head inexorably towards a, another a new general election yes. um, whenever it will take place but you know it'll be intriguing how people how how each side how all sides sort of position themselves on this where they're going to come at it because obviously the government recently has sort of been has they've trumpeted the fact they brought inflation down even though it was it seemed to go up because i mean i don't yeah. know because of them i'm not i'm not an i'm not a good enough economist but certainly it went up during there quite recently but they brought it back down but you know i, I guess as like yeah as people set out their stall for their general election pledges and manifestos and stuff there'll be some interesting machinations around this Yes, I think so. Yes. So, so there's on the one hand, there's inflation and then there's interest rate right, rises and all of the other things that people are contending with. Then, I mean, it's it's just that that thing of that 
so many things are linked. So one of the points that I was bringing up at the round table was about low rates of maternity, paternity pay, and the obviously childcare, childcare availability, childcare costs, you know, you basically start life as a parent on <laughs> on a negative. And, and it's very difficult for people to make that ground up, very, very difficult. So, you know, those, all those things are linked and, it, and they all need to be looked at as part of uh, helping working families. Absolutely. Well, look, we'll see how that plays out over the next however long. But thank you very much uh, to our guest, Laura, this week, who was great. And thank you very much, Mandy. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. (laughs) (laughs) That's nice. Being nice to each other. That's good. Uh, Okay. well, look, thanks for for joining us on uh, Mum's Dad's Work. We should be back in a couple of weeks with our final episode of the season. So please join us then. Thanks very much and bye. Bye.